I'm so grateful to be here um, and to speak to you men. And I was thinking this week about, as a man, it is, it's something that we like to do. We like to be prepared. We like to be prepared for every situation that comes our way. We like to be prepared for the, the things that might happen, the things that we anticipate to happen, and we, we take action steps to become prepared in our lives. We stock away for retirement. We save for the potential emergency that could arise in our lives. We train our kids for the future, preparing them for the future. We keep a flashlight next to our bed just in case there's an earthquake and we gotta get out of the house right away. We go to on target so that we can learn how to defend ourselves so that we can be prepared. That's what we do as men is that we like to be prepared. Some more than others, of course, but we do like to be prepared. And all those things that we prepare for, while they're good to prepare, and I think that's a, a good and right thing for us to do, all of those situations are possible. None of those things that we prepare for are guaranteed. You could die before your retirement comes. You could completely lose your flashlight or the batteries run out. That earthquake may never happen. We prepare for things that we are not even sure are going to take place. And so it would become incumbent on us that if we do know that something is going to happen, if we can have confidence, assurance that something is going to happen, that it's a 100% guarantee that there is a reality that's coming in our lives, it becomes necessary and incumbent for us to prepare. And that's what we get in our text this morning. There is something that we just heard last week that's in the first chapter of 1 Peter, that there is a reality that has come to pass and that will come ultimately into fruition. And that is the fact that the gospel has come, that Jesus has come and he has given his life for us, that salvation has entered into the world through Jesus Christ. And now we await the culmination of that day when Christ returns and brings the fullness of salvation, our glorified bodies and the defeat of sin. It says in the first chapter of 1 Peter, it says that that time when Christ comes and he, he brings the culmination of all things, that that's our inheritance. It's something that we, we look forward to, we long for. It's an inheritance that's, that's waiting for us and it's, it's imperishable, is what it says. It's undefiled, unfading. And it says it's, it's kept. It's kept in heaven for you. It is, it is stable. It's set there for you that you are going to have it. It says, we are being guarded until that day, not by some weakling, but by the very power of God. God is keeping us for that day when we can take possession of our inheritance. It's something that's sure. It's something that we can have confidence in. We've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit as a, as a guarantee, as a seal. We have the resurrection of Christ that we can look for and say we have confidence that this is coming about. But it's not simply sufficient for us as men to, to look to that day and to sit on our hands. No, if that day is coming, we should prepare for that day. And that's what our text lays out as some areas for us as men to think about how we can prepare for this sure coming reality. I want you guys to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13 with me. I want to read this text for us and think about our responsibility to prepare for this coming reality. 
This passage starts with the therefore, pointing back to this reality. It says, knowing, knowing, right, that there is something that Christ is going to come and complete and fulfill, that the gospel is coming ultimately to bring our culmination of our salvation. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As I said, this reality that we know we're going to face is not something that we just sit back and anticipate without any action. We don't just know that this is coming and then get in our lazy boy and just wait for it to happen. No, God asks us to take some steps in preparation for that day. There's a series of commands that we receive in this passage that lays out what we should be doing, how we should be working in the here and now with the anticipation of that day. And the way that this starts is is interesting. It says right away that the thing that we should be working on first is our mind. It says prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded that there's something about what we need to do to prepare for that reality. The therefore that's connected right to this reality that Christ is going to return and bring the culmination of salvation starts now with our minds being prepared. As men, we're, 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 we're often accused by the culture, by popular society, as not being the most mindful of creatures. Women in our lives in this society say we're not very thoughtful sometimes. The sitcoms out there and the, the popular books like to, to treat men like they're absent-minded and they don't really have deep thoughts. They're kind of shallow. You may have heard this idea of the nothing box that can be up in our head where sometimes we can get into our nothing box where nothing is happening up there. And while sometimes we feel like that can be true, as Christian men, we need to be men that are thoughtful, mindful, men that are in control of our thoughts, that have a good, positive thought life, a thought life that is producing something, a thought life that is, is beneficial for us and others. It all starts with the mind. The mind is not just the, a place of thoughts. It's not just a, a place where you have thoughts disconnected from your action. It is the starting point. Your mind is the starting point for everything you do. It's in your mind that you determine. It's in your mind that you resolve. It's in your mind that you come up with the plan and execute that plan. It starts in the mind. And so we want to be ruled by clear minds, but we want to put our minds in the right place. We want to strengthen our minds, be prepared in our minds, bolster our minds. That's how I want to put our first point is this, that we need to bolster our minds for the task. Bolster our minds for the task. You know, in, in Scripture, there's a lot to be said about the mind. There, there's a lot to be said in the mind, especially in the New Testament. Paul, in particular, talks a lot about this, the importance of your mind, the direction and the orientation of your thought. And we hear some of these passages, we know them well, that there is something we need to do. We need to set our minds, that there's a place 
that we need to put our minds, we need to set the orientation of our thoughts. I should hear some of these verses from, from Paul. Philippians 3:19, Paul is speaking of unbelievers. He's saying, you know what unbelievers do? They set their minds in a particular direction. Where is that? It says, it says, for the unbeliever, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They're consumed with their own passions, right? And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. The unbeliever has their minds set on earthly things. The orientation of their thought is set towards the things of earth, the things of the flesh, gratifying the desires of the flesh. That is the direction and the orientation of the mind of the unbeliever. Well, us as believers, we're called to not set our minds on the things of the earth, the things of the flesh. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things where Christ is seated. Think on those things. Set your minds there. Let the orientation of your thought be there. Romans 8, 5, a well-known passage, all those who live according to the flesh, unbelievers who gratify the desires of the flesh, set their minds first on the things of the flesh. Their minds are set and therefore their actions follow. But believers, those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We're spiritually minded. Told in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The orientation of our thoughts makes an impact on the direction of our lives. Something that we need to be aware of as men, that we can't let our minds be without direction. We can't let our thoughts just happen. We need to give them a target, a goal. That goal should be on things of heaven. They should be on things of Christ. They should be saturated with scripture. As we go throughout our day, we're gonna have thoughts about so many other things, but constantly pointing the orientation of our thought back to Christ, back to his word, will orient and direct the path of our lives. In order to live rightly as Christians, we need to think differently than we did before we were Christians. To think and dwell on things differently. But we also know that the world and various thoughts are going to creep into our mind. And so we're told in Scripture that not only do we need to set our minds, but we need to be constantly renewing our minds. Romans 12, a passage we all know. So do not be conformed to this world which is the challenge the world is constantly trying to get us to conform to its way of thinking, its thought processes, its logic justification for the things that it does. It says, but we are to be transformed, different, look different by the renewal of our minds, that we set the direction of our mind and then we constantly renew it and renew it and renew it and renew it each and every day. I lived up in Lake Arrowhead for 15 plus years. One of the things that I did not like about Lake Arrowhead was the amount of spiders that would come into my house. It was not uncommon for me to wake up in the middle of the night with a spider crawling across my chest or my face. Have you ever seen a man get out of bed 
quickly. That, that, that's, that's the way to do it. If you need to get up quick, you need to wake up, put a spider on your face. That'll get you up real fast. It became common for us to, to really not like to sleep with the windows open. Because any little crack, any little hole in your screen, any little tiny mis- or misalignment of your screen, man, a spider was going to get in. And they're going to be on you all the time. And so when we would go to bed, we'd, we'd shut down the windows. We, we'd lock it off. We'd seal up our house. We didn't want these things in our life. And I would also, every time I moved to a new house, the first thing I would do is I would go and I'd take a, a, one of those cans of expanding foam and a, and a tube of caulking, and I would find every single crack in that house, and I would fill that thing up because I didn't want those little monsters in my house. And when it comes to our minds, the world is, is constantly creeping in, constantly telling us to think differently. We need to be men that have the right thought process to seal off the, the thoughts that creep into this world and to set our minds on the things of Christ and to constantly renew, to find the gaps in our thinking and the gaps in our mind so that our thoughts are oriented in the right direction towards Christ. But in this passage, it's not just about the orientation of our mind or the renewal of our mind. In fact, this, this passage has something else to say about our mind. Our mind is something that we need to prepare for a task that our mind is something that we need to prepare for an action. Look at how it says it. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for something, for action. We like to be action-oriented men. Give us a task. We want to do it. We want to accomplish something. We want to fix it. God says, the way that your mind works, you need to be prepared to move. Be prepared to do something. And that starts first in your mind. If you did your, your Bible study this week, you would, you, would see, and you would see this phrase. Really, in Greek, this phrase is not prepare your minds for action. This phrase in Greek is a strange phrase to us now. It says, literally, gird the loins of your mind. It says, gird the loins of your mind, a phrase that we don't use that often. It's an idiom that was used back in the day for a man who would wear a long tunic. And if he wanted to do something, some... It, some sort of activity, running or exercise, which they didn't do very often, if he wanted to get, get dirty and work and do something that's difficult, he would have to pull up his tunic and tuck it into his belt so that he could move more quickly and more efficiently. We hear about this in the Bible. You could assume that the, the father, as he's running towards the prodigal son, would have had to gird his loins so that he can run to his son. One of my favorite examples of this is in, is in Exodus, as the Israelites are sitting there on the eve of the Exodus, they're eating their final meal, and God tells them to eat the, the Passover girded for travel. He says as they sit down, as they eat their final meal, they're to be girded for travel. They're to have their loins tucked in their belt so that at any moment when God calls them to depart the land of Israel, they can go, they can move. They are prepared to leave at a moment's notice. They're ready for action. They're alert. To gird our minds, to gird the loins of our minds means that we are ready. We are prepared to respond with instant obedience to what God calls us to do. We're quick in our minds to be able to respond to the temptations of the world and the thoughts of the world, and we're, we're quick to go back to what God says, to obey his commands, 
We need to be quick in our minds, be men in our minds that are prepared and ready for action to bolster our minds for the task, to be ready to move. And one of the ways that we bolster our minds, one of the ways that we should think, says here that we are to be sober-minded. We're to be sober-minded. In our minds that we're to be sober, what does that that mean? To be sober-minded is this idea that we our minds are clear. We have a clarity of thought, that we're self-disciplined in our own minds. There's self-control that we exhibit with our minds. We're, we're decisive on issues of morality. Really what this means is that the sober-minded Christian sees the world correctly according to what the Word of God says. That we're not swayed by the thoughts of the world that say that it's, it's okay to indulge in a, in a measure of sin. No, we know because we're sober-minded that that's not the case. That our thought life is consistent with what the Bible says. We're to be sober-minded. They're not to be swayed to the thinking of the world that, that they can continue to pursue their passions and have no consequence. We need to rightly align our minds with the things of Christ and be consistent, clear in our thinking. You know, the sober reflection, it's, it's the opposite of what the world does. Maybe you could consider it this way. If we're to be sober-minded, think about the drunkard that you know. Think about the young man who has given himself to the bottle. What do we think about that person? Someone that has no intention. Someone who's out there just to fulfill their passions. They have no purpose, no forward energy. Just wasting their life on the fulfillment of what they think will satisfy them. And when we look at that person, we say, that's not right. That's not good. You're not going to go anywhere if you do that. It's going to be destructive to your life. We're clear in our thinking on this issue. We need to be that, have that same type of clarity as we think about all things that God tells us in his word. That as the world comes and says, you know what, homosexuality actually isn't bad. Sexual immorality, you know, it's not that bad. It's not going to harm anybody. It's not going to lead anybody down a path that's, that's bad. You know, this issue of pride, it's not that bad. If you just go and seek your own, it's not that bad. We need to be sober-minded enough to say, no, it is. The word tells us clearly that it is, and we need to fix our minds on the fact that we cannot waver. We need to be decisive on these moral issues in our mind, to be sober-minded. We know how easily Christians can, can falter on this point. If we lose our focus, if we lose our clear-headedness, our sober-mindedness, if we become mentally intoxicated with these things of the world, we can lose our path and our direction. And it's, it's not an instantaneous thing. We don't become drunkards overnight. We start with one little sip. And it builds over time. And this is true for us as men. We need to be careful what is going on in our minds. Jesus warns us against adultery. And he says, but if you look lustfully at a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. That the, the start of this isn't full-on adultery. It is a lustful thought. An intent of your heart to desire something outside of the bounds that God has set. When those things come into our mind, we need to be quick, sober-minded, ready for action to put those things to death. When we have 
anger rise up in us because something happens, whether it's on the road or in the workplace or at the home. We need to, we need to think. Is this righteous of me? Is this good? Is this moral for me to act this way? Don't assume that it's only bad if you are the full-blown expression of an angry man. Whether it's pride or whether it's greed, it's slow. One drink at a time. You become intoxicated with the thinking of the world. No, we need to be sober-minded, thinking on the things of Christ. We need to bolster our minds for the task that's at hand. God has called us to do that. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter two, or 12, briefly. I want to get your eyes on this passage. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Jesus is addressing the people, and he gives a similar circumstance. He says this, he says, stay dressed for action. Be ready. You can imagine what he's saying is, be girded, be ready, ready to move, be dressed for action. And keep, keep your lamps burning, be prepared. It says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they're so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back. Jump down to verse 45. In comparison, he does not want us to be like this. There's a servant who doesn't care, who thinks that his master is tearing, says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, which we can so easily say as Christians, it's been 2,000 years, Lord, where are you? When are you coming back? You say that you're gonna come back. The revelation of Jesus Christ, all things are gonna be made right, but where are you? If we think our master is delayed, we think that the judgment's not coming. If we think that it's not sure and certain, that person begins to beat the male and female servants, begins to act evilly. He begins to eat and drink and get drunk. He begins to follow his own passions and the passions of the world because he falsely assumes that the master is not coming back. Because the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, an hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Our motivation for our action, for our alertness in our mind, for activity here and now is to prepare for the coming of Christ, to prepare our own lives and to be committed to the task that God has called us to be committed to. If you pop back up to Luke 12, 32, there's a foundation to this statement. He tells them to fear not, little flock, and he sets this hope in them. He says, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But before we're told to stay dressed for action and to keep our lamps burning, to be prepared and to not think that the master is delayed and to not act evilly, we're told that the God is going to give the kingdom to us, the same thing that Peter does here. That we know that the kingdom is coming and it's sure, and so we have a response to that, to be prepared, to be like men prepared for action. So we need to bolster our mind for the task, to set our hope, to renew our minds, to be ready for action, to be sober-minded in our thinking as preparation for what God has called us to do. Turn back to 1 Peter. Look at the rest of verse 13. The rest of verse 13 says, after, you do, after you've done this, if you've prepared your mind for action, you've, you've been sober-minded, it says now this, set your hope. Set your hope What? The same thing that Jesus set their hope on before this command, that the kingdom is coming. Set your hope fully on the grace 
that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To set your hope on the fact that Christ is coming back and the culmination of his grace is at hand. We need to set our hope. But we need to set our hope in the right place. We need to have the right type of hope. We need to fix our hope on the right thing, the final outcome, the end game. So I want to say point two this way, fix your hope on the end goal. Fix your hope on the end goal. What is the end goal? Well, I've said it already, but the end goal is essentially this, that grace has been initiated in each one of our lives. Grace has been initiated, and we are recipients of the initiation of grace in our lives. When Christ came, he offered the gift of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ, the redemption of our sins. But grace is yet to be culminated at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns on the clouds of heaven and we are caught up to meet him as we receive our glorified bodies, that is grace culminated. Right now we are recipients and we can see the minor victories in our life. We can see a removal of the things in our lives that we had before. Our sins are less dominating in our lives. We have the joy of Christ that comes, but we're also still plagued with some of the consequences of sin because sin is still present. At the culmination of Jesus Christ, that's no longer an issue. The blessing, the grace of that day, that coming future revelation that's already been initiated is going to come in its fullness when Christ appears. I want you to notice in this text, this is not something that you earn. We know this. It's not something that we work towards, we cause it to happen by our good deeds or our efforts or our evangelism or whatever it is. This is not something that, that we cause to come about. Christ is coming at a time that is his own. It says here that it's brought to you. It's given to you as a gift. It's brought to you in his timing, in his way. It's not earned. And so we're told to hope, to hope in that reality that Christ is coming back. But we're told to hope in a certain way. And if you've been at Compass any length of time, you know that when we say hope, what we don't mean is we don't mean the, the way that we commonly use the word hope nowadays. Like when we say, well, I hope my team is going to win. Well, that's not the same type of hope as biblical hope. That's a 50-50 shot. And you, you might be thinking, well, not my team. I mean, you know, my team this year has got it on lock. Well, still, you know what can happen. It's not sure. It's not guaranteed. That's not the type of biblical hope we're talking about. The biblical hope we are talking about conveys a sense of confident expectation, assurance. It's an expectation strong enough for us to act on it. If you had that kind of hope in your team, you'd be putting money down so that you can act on it. You'd be saying, oh, I know they're going to win. We have a confident enough hope to act on it, to do something about it. So sure we can bank on it. And we know this even more so from the text because it says we're to have our hope fully set. It's a, a full hope. We know that because Christ put his, his resurrection as a down payment for us that we can look back to the resurrection and say, if he rose, we will rise. If he received a glorified body, we will receive a glorified body with him. We will rule and reign with him. We can be confident. That the hope that we should have that this end is coming is something that is sure and it's confident. But I want you to, to think about this hope. This hope is not just an attitude that you muster up. It's not just an attitude to be cultivated, to be worked on. 
It's a reality to be recognized is what it is. It's a reality to be recognized. The fact that Christ is coming back is sure. It's guaranteed. And for us to have hope in it, we need to put our minds there. We need to recognize it, to be certain of it, to think on it. When we put our hope in the fact that Christ is coming back, it assumes that now we're going to have a response to that. That as we look to Christ's culmination of salvation and we know what is going to come, that now we live in response to that. In anticipation of our future salvation, now we respond to it. Men, I want you to think about the things that you hope in. What is it that you put your hope in? We put our hope in so many things. We put it in our house. We put it in our relationships. We put it in our finances, in our bank account. We could so easily put our hope in the economy, saying, you know, it's always going to go this way. In the stock market, you know, I've got enough money for later on. We're putting our hope in, in, in things that are unsure, that are unknown. Put our hope in, in the government, in the current politician and say, as long as this person's in office, we'll be fine. Put our hope in so many things. If you don't know where your hope is at, it's pretty easy to figure out when things come crumbling down. When you're in the midst of trials, like Peter's audience is in the midst of trials, it becomes real clear where your hope is. If when your finances fall apart, you crumble, you're destitute, you do not know what to do, you are absolutely hopeless, then your hope is in your finances. If at the next election, the person you want to win doesn't win and you're crushed, your hope is in the government. Your hope is in your president. Your hope is in your leaders. Well, some of these things aren't bad to have a minor amount of hope. Our full, confident hope should never be in these things. The fullness of our hope should be oriented towards Christ, that things in this world aren't going to go the way we want, that the economy is going to tank at some point again, that your house may not gain value, you may lose value, that your job, you may lose it, you may be laid off, that our hope is not to be here, our hope is to be placed in heaven, our hope is with Christ. If we are becoming fearful and anxious and Upset when things go bad in our life, that's a good sign that our hope is misplaced. We want our hope to be in the right place. We want to be fixed and steadfast as men, stable with our hope fixed in Christ, that no matter what comes, we are level, we are stable, we can endure it because our hope is immovable, it's confident, and it's placed in the right person and the reality that it's coming. And it wouldn't make any sense for us as Peter says, if we're strangers and sojourners in this world, if we're aliens that are passing through to set up shop and to put our hope here and now, it'd be like you going on vacation, getting into the hotel room and deciding to remodel, to put your roots down, to bust out that wall and fix up the bedroom. Why? No, put your hope where you're going to be in your real home, in your true home. We all know that. And for us, our true home is not here. It's, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's with Christ. 
that we are sojourners, we're aliens, we're passing through, and so we need to fix our hope not on the here and now and on this life and the various things we can put our hope in. No, we put our hope in Christ and in him alone. The reality of the culmination of Christ, it should drive us to action, to living a life. And one of the things that should drive us to do is to stop the pattern of living that represented our former life. Look at, look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. It says, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be patterned or molded to look like what you look like before Christ. That the reality that Christ's coming is sure and it's certain and that we should fix our hope on it should drive us to stop this type of living. To stop this type of living that represented our former life. This idea of our former ignorance really is this, that we had a knowledge without God. We didn't accept, acknowledge God. We didn't know our Heavenly Father and so we lived out of our own passions, out of our own desires. We were ruled by our desires. That the things that we wanted in our flesh were the things that we sought after. That's not how we live as Christians. And when people lose their, their focus, they, they take it off of the culmination that's coming. They, they let their mind walls fall down. They don't bolster their mind. They let things creep in. We lose sight of, of God's future revelation of himself. We begin again, to focus on earthly fulfillment of desires. That's what we do. If we let the barriers of our wall of our mind fall and we do not fix our hope on Christ, we are so susceptible to the temptations of the former life creeping back in. Yet we know what, what, what Paul says in Galatians. He says, those who belong to Christ, those of us that are in this room, we belong to Christ, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We know that that's true. We know that in Christ that there's been a transformation, a renewal that's taken place that makes it so that our fleshly desires and our passions don't dominate us anymore. They don't rule us anymore. They don't have dominion over us anymore. But that doesn't mean that they can't creep in and try to grab a foothold in our life. Which is why Peter says this. He wouldn't say this to believers if he believed that this was a total, absolute reality, that they could no longer be tempted by the things of this world. No, he wouldn't say this. He says, don't be conformed. Don't be pressed into this mold of what the world says. We don't want to have our flesh rise up again after coming to Christ. We don't want to take our eyes off of the reality of what Christ is doing. We need to be aware of the reality of this world that it's always going to creep in. There's a battle that's taking place for your heart and your soul and your mind to convince you that this world is all that there is. That the pleasures of this world are better than the pleasures that are coming in the life to come. Think about this. Peter even says, you know, this is a, this is a testimony. This is a testimony for us men. It says, when we, when we ignore these desires, when we stop pursuing these things in our life, when we don't pattern ourselves after our former life, but after our new life, it says in 1 Peter 4, it says, with respect to this, the Gentiles, as they look, as respect as they, the Gentiles who practice these evil acts that he lists in 1 Peter 4, it says, they're surprised 
when you don't engage in them, when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, they look at you and they, they're confused by you. It's part of our testimony that we abstain from the actions of the world, but we need to be careful not to let them creep in. Peter calls us here obedient children. One of the reasons why we don't conform to the pattern of the world is because we have a, a new father. We've been given a new birth, a birth to a living hope. We have a heavenly father that we are now responsible to. We're no longer ruled and governed by our passions and our desires. We are ruled and governed by God. So we are obedient to him, not obedient to our desires, not obedient to our flesh, not obedient to the, the wants and desires of this world. No, we're obedient as obedient children to God. No longer marked and ruled in our own hearts by our own selfish, prideful, lustful desires. No, we've been given a new birth. We live now for God. And if we are obedient children, if we are people that have accepted this reality that we are children of God, heirs of Christ, that we've been brought now into the family of God, it is incumbent on us that we now bear a family resemblance, that we look like our father, like father, like son. What the father looks like, we look like. And what is that? Ultimately, it's this, that we're holy. That God is set apart and sinless. He's set apart from this world and his moral character and nature. He is different. He is other. He stands alone. He says, you should resemble that, this sinless character of your father, like father, like son. And so in verse 15, it says, but he who is called you is holy. As he is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Finally, the thing we need to prepare for the thing we need to think about as we move forward in this Christian life and we anticipate, yes, we need to bolster our minds, yes, we need, to, we need to fix our hope on the coming of Christ, but we also need to make a commitment. Third point is this, we need to commit our lives to holiness. It's not enough just to casually pursue holiness. It's not enough to assume holiness is gonna take place because of your participation in the activities of the church. There's something that needs to happen, a commitment on our part to living lives of holiness. Ultimately, this is rooted in the character and nature of God. We know this. We're to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're to imitate him. As he is holy, we are to be holy. We're to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Now, what does this mean? That seems impossible, and it is in this life, but we make steps in progress towards holiness. Now, Christians, we need to be careful not to assume that what we're saying is we're like God and his deity. That's not what we're saying. Maybe it'd be better for you to think of it as we imitate Christ and his humanity, striving for the human righteousness that Christ embodied for us, that we have the testimony of in the Gospels, that this sinless obedience that Christ had on this earth is what we imitate in our pursuit of holiness, in our fight, in our battle for holiness. So, of course, how do we do this? What does it really mean for us to be holy? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that holiness for God's people included two different aspects. It included separation from evil, but it also included a life of righteousness. 
It included a separation from, from the world and from evil and from debauchery, but it also included the obedience to God's commands and his statutes. The ceremonial law, the purification, there was a both and. It wasn't just separation. We often talk about that because we know that the word holy means set apart. But we're not just set apart from something, we're set apart to something. We're set apart from the world, we're set apart from sin, but we're set apart to God, to live in obedience to God. Now in the Old Testament, what that looked like in terms of separation was a total separation as a people, as a nation, from the other nations. A separation where they were isolated, they stayed away, there was no intermarrying, there was no worship of their gods, they were separate they didn't even come in contact with people who were sinners. They, they fled from them. If they came in contact, they were unclean, and now they had to live the life of obedience of doing the ceremonial laws, providing the sacrifice, doing everything that was necessary for them to live now to God by obeying the statutes. Well, as Christians, now it's, it's different. It's different for us than it was for Israel. We're not called to be a nation that's separated. We're not called to come into this room, lock the doors, and say, no sin in here, no sinners are coming in here. No, there is to be a separation of evil, but it's a separation of evil while we're in the midst of the world now. It's to live in obedience to God in the midst of the world, not to be separated in terms of proximity or location, but to be separated in character, in morality, that we flee from sin that we live lives that are set apart to God in the fact that we flee from sin and we pursue lives of obedience to Christ. We're not practicing the ceremonial law, making ourselves clean by washings and sacrifice. We are being obedient to Christ. It's different now. So we need to abstain from sinful desires and yes, live good, fruitful, productive lives as Christians among the pagans, among the world. It's how we work on our holiness. The word holy is about us being set apart from the world, different, like Christ was, different, sinless, working towards that end, but also devoted to glorifying God. That's what we should be, devoted to glorifying God. This idea of being holy speaks to a pattern in your life. So what we're looking for is a pattern, a pattern in life that it's, it's transforming every day. Every day, you are, you are looking more and more like Christ. You're being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ every single day, every moment, every thought, every action. You're putting aside sin, and you're living holy lives. What holiness is, is it means that the pattern of your sinful life is broken. You're now being conformed slowly into the image of Christ until the day when we have the fullness of of our glorified bodies, and are like Christ in his holiness. We are without sin. That's the day we look for. You know, the, the challenge for us in holiness is, is much more complicated than that. We, we, we live in obedience to God's commands, and, and really we can't cover in the scope of this lesson the, the totality of what we're to be obedient to. What Peter does in the rest of this book is he lays out what it means to be holy. Each and every command that he now gives is a step for us to take in our holiness. And so we as men, we need to commit as we hear the rest of the teachings through this book, each and every command is an opportunity for us to be fixed in our mind, to say, I am ready to move, to obey. 
and I'm going to do it with the thought that Christ is coming to complete the step of holiness, and in the middle, it's going to be hard. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit to it. I'm going to commit to a life of holiness, to taking steps in this path, this progression, as we move forward to the culmination that Christ brings. But in the middle time, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle. So we need to get our minds in the fight. We need to prepare our minds that there is a battle. There's a battle that we're fighting. The world and the flesh and Satan are against us, tempting us and telling us that we can't do it, that the temptation is too great. Succumb to our ways. Give in. You can't win. We need to throw our minds and say, we can win. We have confidence that we can win. We know that we can win. There's going to be failures now. Yes, we're going to lose battles and skirmishes, but we can win. And so we need to be willing to fight. Even if we might lose sometimes, be willing to fight. Committed to participate in the battle that Christ has placed us in here and now. In the midst of the world, not separated from it, but in the midst of it. We cannot ignore the battle that is here. We can't ignore it. We can't run from it. We can't just live passive lives and say, we're going to be fine if we just sit back. No, we've got to be committed to the fight. Prepared, quick to respond, quick to obey. I was reading this week about a man named Wilbur McLean. Some of you may have heard of him. He's got a unique name, Wilmer Anybody here named Wilmer? I don't think I've ever heard that name before. Wilmer McLean. In 1854, Wilmer McLean, a Virginian man, he decided that he was gonna, he's gonna go to the outskirts of a nice little town and settle down. He was gonna get himself a nice little plot of land in Virginia, far away from what was clearly a coming battle. As things were heading towards the Civil War, he decided he wanted no part of that, so he moved out into the country. And he settled in a little house along a creek called Bull Run Creek. And he worked hard on his house. He made some major improvements. He, he made this a really nice house to live in. And the culmination of his efforts was he built this really great barn. It wasn't just a timber barn. It wasn't, wasn't that. No, it was a stone barn. It was nice, sturdy, stable. He was, he was committed to that barn. This is a nice place to be. Well, when the Civil War erupted in a few years later in 1861, the first of the major engagements was the first battle of Bull Run, which took place exclusively on Wilmer's property. At one point during the battle, an artillery shell fell down the chimney of his house where he had a fire with a pot of stew boiling, and the artillery shell fell into the pot of stew and exploded and launched food all over his house. And that was, that was bad, that might have messed up his interior and he might not have liked that. But something worse happened, when the battle was raging, the Confederate troops were housing their wounded inside of Wilmer's nice barn, his stone barn. And when the Union, of course, saw this, well, they directed all their attention at that barn. Artillery shell after artillery shell launched at the barn until the thing came crumbling down. Ultimately destroyed the barn. And for Wilmer, he couldn't escape the battle that was taking place. He was right in the midst of it. He, he put his, his plot right in the midst of the battle. 
and he thought he could escape from the fight. And we often do the same thing. We, we are in the midst of the battle right now. We're in the midst of it. There is a battle raging for our lives. We could either succumb to what the world says or we could fight for holiness. We could try to ignore it or we could fight. There's no escaping what's taking place. The world and the flesh, they're trying to get us to conform to their ways and we need to stand up and fight. God has called us to fight for the battle of holiness, to to prepare our minds for this fight, to bolster our minds for the battle that's raging, to to see the victory at the end, to know that we have victory and to commit to the hard work of obedience in the middle. Our, our future inheritance is incentive for us to live holy lives. Our, our inheritance is promised to us as followers of Christ, and so we need to keep that in mind as we fight the battle for holiness, for our good, for the good of this world, but to the glory of God. That's the battle we're in, and we need to fight that battle as men. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your strength, your empowerment, your, your spirit to dwell in us as we, we fight this battle. We know that even though that you've broken the bonds of dominion of sin in our life, that our desires, have, they've been crucified along with Christ, that they've been placed on that cross to die, but they still creep in. Each one of us experiences the the draw to sin that comes from our own flesh, the lure of the world that comes in. And God, we need to be far from that as we keep our eyes fixed on the the fact that you are coming. We don't want to be men who, because you're delayed, we forget you're coming. We want to remember that you are coming. God, help us to help to impress that on our minds. Help us to bolster our minds fixed on you, set on you, being ready for action. God, help us to win the battles that we fight each and every day for our own holiness as we seek to be like you. God, it's what you demand of us. It's what you require of us, but we need your help. We need fellow men around us that we have in this room to push us to that end, to keep us accountable, to hold us to that high standard that we are not gonna conform to the pattern of this world or to the pattern of our former ignorance, but that we are going to pursue a life of holiness and it's gonna be hard. God, we are men. You call us to do hard things. God, we ask that you would give us the strength to do the hard things. As we go into our groups, God, give us one another as a support, as a help to these battles that we fight daily. God, we look to you. We thank you that ultimately you are coming and you're gonna win the battle. It's sure and it's guaranteed and we are so thankful for that. Help us to hope in that reality. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for his salvation and the culmination of that that's to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.